providing real solutions for real business challenges. Welcome to FNF Unplugged, Season 4. Conversations with professionals across the country, exploring business topics and empowering personal growth in real estate, financial services, and the title insurance industry. Well, thanks everyone for joining us again today for another edition of FNF Unplugged. Very timely guest to have with us today. Not only a great person who I've known for many years and I've been, we've been on panels together at MBA, at various trade shows over the years, Ike Surrey. Ike is the CEO and chairman of Funding Shield. And Funding Shield has um, been involved in protecting lenders and title professionals and settlement professionals in the wire fraud space in particular for years. And he's also the um, chairman and CEO of Pelican Point Investment Group, which is a private equity and merchant bank out of California. Uh, he is on the board of the California Mortgage Bankers Association. I think I saw that was a recent uh, election. Yeah. So so my sympathies on that, Ike, that's just more <laughs> meetings to go to. Um, uh, but uh, Ike has been described as a serial entrepreneur. Knowing Ike over the years, to give you an idea, just uh, one aspect of the large number of businesses, he's been involved in companies that uh, as wide as um, in interest as animation production, uh, company okay. that he sold part of which to Disney. So he's done pretty much everything. And I'll add too, and especially for uh, our listeners on the East Coast, he is a graduate of Rutgers University, which I know my South Jersey friends pronounce as Ruggers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so all that being said, Ike, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, the very good introduction. And um, I'm quite embarrassed. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, saying all that, you know, and obviously all the things that you have done and do in your daily life, how did you get into this particular line of business in regard to the wire fraud prevention? And we'll talk about how, from my perspective, many ways you started in the lending community. But, you know, rarely when asked, do six-year-olds say, well, I want to grow up to help combat cyber fraud. <laughs> um, how did you get into this particular line, again, given your wide background of various other uh, business interests? Sure. It's a little long of a uh, journey getting here, but uh, I'll summarize it. Having moved from India to US in the tri-state area, the beginnings of my work was in technology, and I've been in technology for 35 years. And the first task living in tri-state area that I got engaged in was to deploying NASDAQ and other Wall Street firm trading floors. And it was basically in those years, late 80s and early 90s, optimizing and adding speed to transactions on those exchanges and trading floors. So it was a combination of tech in a manner of uh, hardware and software solutions to find a way to trans capture data, transmit data, manage data, data risk, data protection, data transmission, data management, and also disaster recovery centers so that the exchanges and trading floors don't have any downtime. And that put me on a track where led to deployment of North American ticketing centers for American airlines. Again, the concept was the same, optimizing the workflows, managing, capturing, transmitting data 
and ensuring that there's no data breach and data delay and so on. It further led to me moving to Silicon Valley and a decade long of acquisitions, integrations of technology products that touched almost every industry where it was always optimizing the industries such as MRI imaging for hospitals or smart cities or surveillance for airports or train stations. And almost every time it was a combination of audio, video and other kind of data that we had to capture and transmit and make sure, such as switches and routers for the broadcast companies working with Earth satellite stations or with cable companies. So uh, an experience of that sort, fast forward, there was a ton of other, I should say, diversification I had after that experience led to an opportunity in this world of the mortgage industry, where again, the need was quite, from that experience, you could see the industry over the decades has tried to use tech has failed time and time over to find a solution that was common to all and all kinds of players or sizes of players. And there was no one such platform. Uh, It was quite disjointed where folks could not interconnect with each other. If they build tech, didn't work with others. And if um, they tried to build tech, it failed over time or adoption didn't go up. And the industry is quite complex. Unlike any other country in the world, American real estate and ownership and the process of buying and verifications is quite large and complicated. So it led to an opportunity where basically the past caught up to looking at this void in this industry and ensuring that coming in with that mindset, oh, done this before for financial institutions. These are financial institutions, again, bank and non-bank lenders, and dealing with a very complex issue of tons of vulnerabilities in the process of manufacturing a mortgage. And how do you make something that could be plug and play, malleable, safe, secure, seamless. So we chose a sweet spot where we figured that the most important and hardest part of the journey where most time and vulnerabilities exist is at the closing venue. And at the closing venue, it made sense to come in and provide something that's simple and something that's malleable, something that people don't have to spend a ton of time and call it their own, get, get get carried away with vanity, but make it available for the rest of competitors in the industry. And that led to this kind of an opportunity. Beyond that, as you mentioned, a couple of other firms that I am on the board of or I lead, the family office Pelican Point uh, Investment Bank, which is investment group, a merchant bank and private equity. Uh, we put it together so that we could participate in transactions where we could find um, an opportunity to build a stimulating business or partner up with a stimulating business and either own it, co-own it, and finance it with our relationships on Wall Street with past experience, and then find our stimulating challenge to build something. And this opportunity of Funding Shield was a company called ClosingProtectionLetter.com back in the early 2000s and had a very successful business until 2008 that basically uh, suffered millions of dollars in receivables, clients disappearing, regulations changing, and it started puttering and had a life off post-2008 crisis or nine crisis that was not necessarily doing well. One of its clients was in the top uh, five. The clients in those days were Bear, Lehman, Countrywide, Alcovia, everybody who did not survive. And one of the clients was a very large PE firm, which is number one, number two in the world 
and knocked on the company and basically said, we'd like to reignite services and we'd like to find a way to make a new workflow that adapts to today's environment. That's when the company was presented to me and some of the experience I didn't share right now in building the businesses of the past, I was put in many different positions where I was restructuring the position, repositioning the business, setting the strategy and execution plan in play to chase where the opportunity lies in building enterprise value. And I find that to be the most stimulating. So this was one of those opportunities where he said, okay, it's finance, we understand that. It's tech that's needed, we understand that. And if a blue chip client's knocking on the door to say we need a solution, would love to do this. And that's how I got engaged. And over a short period of time, bought out all the shareholders in that prior business and set the stage, vision, strategy, and solution that based on what I shared with you, along with a team member that came in from Wall Street with specialty in mortgage, Adam, who's the president of my firm, quite younger than me, 15 years younger, but had had the experience in his 20s of providing solutions for these troubled assets, which were mostly mortgage on Wall Street. And so a combination of our team effort uh, has uh, done well in presenting a solution that's been adopted over time. And we've gone through a cycle of what it takes to bootstrap and build and run in a manner that's been debt-free and uh, profitable for us. Hopefully that covers quite a bit. <laughs> well, it does. And, and like so many people who are in our industry, yes, coming from other backgrounds and then seeing both a problem and an opportunity yeah. uh, that, to accomplish something that's very important. And recently uh, you were interviewed on Bloomberg yeah. and you talked about there a report that Funding Shield had just recently issued in regard to third quarter uh, of 2022 activity of yeah. attempted and actual wire fraud. And say, the listeners to this program, the vast majority are title and settlement providers, but we have a lot of people who aren't. We have uh, lenders, we have uh, real estate professionals, we have investment uh, yeah. groups. But that report showed that this problem is really even more alarming, I think, yes. than generally thought. Can, can you go into some of those findings here so that people can really understand that not only, not only has this been a problem and an issue for some time, but it's a growing and, and really frightening problem? Sure, sure. Thank you for that question. I think it's uh, quite meaningful because it means different things to different aspects of uh, people working in this industry. What we started doing about three years ago was starting to measure every quarter what we process in securing transactions. What I mean by that is, as I shared earlier, and you know it better than me because you've been in this industry much longer, what we learned was that post the crisis, the regulations as they changed, much of the burden of any wrongdoing or anything that goes awry in a closing lies on the shoulders of the lenders. All the stakeholders involved, title companies to settlement agents to other parties involved, attorneys and so on. If something goes awry or they don't perform well and the transactions doesn't close in a compliant fashion, and if there's neglect or misrepresentation, the burden sits on the lender. And in order to govern execution of those stakeholders in the transaction, it requires quite a bit of manpower and it requires a lot of time and it requires a lot of money and it compromises margins. So we found that most of the ability to manage what kind of risk lenders want to take allowed them to kind of 
spend or not spend enough time and money for making that happen, to have a seamless, secure uh, workflow for themselves, including the stakeholders that are involved. As you know, sometimes a lender doesn't know in which state, which county, who's going to end up doing that work on their behalf. But they're required to make sure that they're vetted. We also know that title companies, they're very great and, and provide a very uh, very uh, important service in the industry. And people depend on it quite a bit. And the mix of the agents in the title companies are either employees or agents, not necessarily employees. And they have thousands and thousands of them. And the status of them keeps changing. Sometimes they might be in good standing. Sometimes they might not be in good standing. Sometimes they might know the jurisdiction they can work in. Sometimes maybe they work outside of the jurisdiction that perhaps by oversight might not be renewed or might not have the right insurance coverage, e coverage, and so on of the stakeholders involved. And it becomes very hard for lenders to keep an eye on it on real-time basis. So it's not by... I mean, of course, there's inside parties that commit fraud too, but majority of these are outside parties. And what is inside and outside in, in this definition of closing is a blend of both. <laughs> and recently over the years, fraud has only been rising. There's an attack in America, not just a medical virus, but also virus and software, as we talk about breaches and phishing and, and all different schemes of uh, misrepresenting and stealing money. And that leads to many vulnerable positions, not by choice, but just by design of how the industry operates dependent on technology. Because you start with a search of looking for a house uh, based on online presence, and then you, everything you do is online. And on, online is where if you get taken, many of the, even in COVID, for example, in pandemic, number of folks were working out of home for companies be it agencies, be it lenders, be it banks. When they work out of home, they're outside of the umbrella of security footprint for ensuring that the computers they get on, software they get on, the network they get on, the routers they get on, the Wi-Fi they choose to play on, not using their kids or husbands or extra laptop in a coffee shop or in a bedroom or elsewhere or jumping on neighbors. A lot of that is out of your hands. If not by choice and if not by neglect, the environment created more vulnerabilities that ends up being uh, an entry point for bad actors and breach and take identity or alter data or static data sitting there can be misrepresented and changed. And that's led to this rise and it needs a solution where um, wire fraud, what we found in these reports every quarter that we did for the last three years has only been going up. And during the process of three years, we found that, you know, organizations like FBI and others have reached out to us, work with us, and their findings are obviously only of those that has been reported to them. A large part of these transactions are not being reported to them. Well, and, and I'll just jump in. I found that when uh, I did a presentation a few years ago at the uh, risk management conference for MBA yeah. in a committee meeting, and the question was posed, well, how big is the problem? It's like, <laughs> well, here's here's how big we know it to be. But the fact of the matter is it's much bigger. Yes. Because, and in particular, and I say this as an attorney, quite often law firms who yeah. handle tremendous number of transactions, real estate transactions, particularly in the South, in New England, the upper Rocky Mountain states, 
that if they have a loss due to a wire fraud because of reputational risk, yeah. they don't tell anybody. They That's just right. pony up the money and move on. So it's like, right. well, here's what we know to be the problem. It's actually much bigger. We just don't know how big. That's right. It's very true. And I was just le leading to that, that we found when we started measuring that going back a couple of years ago, there was about, you know, alarming rates of 25%, 27% of transactions that we were processing on a daily basis over a period of a quarter, and we'll pick a portfolio of 20 billion, 30 billion, whatever that number looks like. And it's only been growing for us because of growth and embracing uh, the market, embracing and adopting the product. And so we have a nice history of that, of what we've been tracking. And what we track is, you know, wire fraud information, meaning wire account info, if it's been altered, changed, doesn't match. It could be a blend of different things. But any of those things that are not in place, if it's not exactly what it needs to be, ABA account name, example for wire account, there it's leading to an open entry for vulnerability. And so you need to have all sorts of different algorithms and real-time source data verification in place to ensure that you've got everything in place and you have transaction history of these players to ensure that it's a good account or it's been flagged, or it's in the blacklist, or things of that sort. So it capture all that data over time that we have, allows us to have this ecosystem and repository and live basis to verify. What we've seen is that that percentage went from 20s in Q3, as you noted on our report, is gone to about 47, 48% of transactions had risk associated that could lead to fraud. It's a mix of things. The whole idea of us being there provide assistance to the community is to ensure that if there's any sort of mismatched neglect, altered data, or simply misrepresentation, we catch it before the closing so fraud doesn't occur. So we're not coming after fraud to fix it. We're ahead of it to ensure things match, things are verified, vetted, validated, certified before they move forward. So and so your data that you're talking about here really is based off all those tripping points where, that's you, right. where you catch things up front as the potential. That's right. And who knows which one of them can lead to fraud if we let it go. If you can do it as a utility versus a high ticket insurance product, then you kind of serve purpose to every being able to use something in concert that continues to grow. And what has happened for us, we've seen is that with large banks, small banks, credit unions, agencies, and others, and non-bank lenders, we today have 95% of verified vetted parties in the country in our ecosystem that is automatically running all day and is working off our programs in many ways to have acquired real-time data from the depositories, from the parties that are involved in the transactions, and transaction history of them. We know when they transacted yesterday, 10 times a day, or haven't transacted for six months. <laughs> or we caught them three weeks ago and blacklisted them. So you got to really keep your eye on, on all the moving balls <laughs> to be able to service. That statistic is particularly alarming because, uh, and say, and I am aware, you know, from talking to title agents, you know, over this last holiday, period, Christmas, New Year's weekend, we had three-day weekends, there was a massive amount of attempts. And unfortunately, there were a few successful attempts 
yeah. at wire fraud, particularly in regard to commercial transactions, which are quite often large dollar transactions. Yes. And something too, I know that, you know, you and I in our conversations and you've worked heavily in the mortgage lender space for yes. some time. And I don't know the title and settlement providers are aware of concerns that lenders have in regard to wire fraud uh, in the warehouse lending space. Can you talk a little bit about that? How, because it's something that, you know, we're always focused on us in the title and settlement world and those monies that uh, involve uh, payoffs, fundings, collection of funds from consumers, disbursement of funds to consumers. But can you talk a little bit about those concerns that the, the mortgage space has had for a number of years, particularly in that warehouse uh, area? Sure, I mean, we have a number of warehouse uh, banks as clients and the challenge that they've experienced is that, uh, of course, the old business for them was very easy to get a fax or an email for wire instructions and simply do that. And it's no longer the market that you can do that in. The other side of it is they've experienced over the last few years has also been fraud. And when they experience that, it kind of tells them that, listen, the, the kind of clients we're lending money to, we want to make sure the asset quality is in place and not deal with post-closing reconciliations when things don't match up and it costs us more money or whoever that we're working with, it'll cost them more money. And so we have a number of warehouse banks as clients that get the idea because they're not necessarily sitting in the front originating transactions and going through that pain, but they're definitely seeing what their clients are facing in the market and what they need to do to assist them and participate in the workflows or facilitating value add tools so that the asset quality when coming in is uh, to the par uh, as they like. It could be as simple as using a light product of wire verifications, as simple as that, or it could be a lot more than that, making sure all the representations being made in the process for ENO, for insurance, for tax uh, jurisdictions, for ownership, from bank account, and so on. They want to see their clients actually doing that. And if the clients do that, the warehouse banks feel a lot more at comfort to see, for example, we've got workflows that we certify every loan for all those representations and fields of uh, entry points that they have to capture in that transaction. And if we are deployed before closing to issue that certificate, that certificate that we issue carries a warranty of up to $5 million per loan per transaction. Now, you've got some coverage against loss right there, and the processes by a third party have been deployed that are not taking too much time and are within the CTC time that are uh, very useful and efficient, cutting down cost on workflows with automation. And that allows the warehouse banks to basically get into a position to say, not only the asset quality coming through is gonna be great that we're financing, our customers who are the originators have cut down their cost increased throughput, they're profitable, they're more secure, and this asset for us that we're lending into has gotten better. And they get into a position to say, if you have this deployed solution, we're happy to facilitate higher lines of credits <laughs> and, and that we can cycle money faster and quicker and originate and have a very efficient business. And beyond that, perhaps we'll give you what they call accelerated cash advance positioning that will fund you sooner than waiting for documents to come in because we know you've got it. Wet funding, as you call it. 
So it not only leads to better security, yes. but it also leads to a more profitable transaction for all the parties involved. That's right. That's right. Very, very true. And the margins are improving at the bottom line. Throughput is going forward. And in this climate, it leads to when everybody's dealing with right sizing. In this particular year, everybody's cutting down staff, finding ways to cut down costs. But when you do that, historically, the industry would go do that. You get more vulnerable on a smaller crew of people and overwork them and not necessarily work on time or at time and have a lot of uh, governance issues where you're not compliant anymore, cutting corners as lenders, and that would lead to trouble. Uh, very rough and challenging times. Well, uh, and certainly, you know, in the title and settlement world, I know that many title and settlement providers who have been grappling with the wire fraud issue for years now. And you and I know a lot of other people who provide services in that space. There are yep. many good services. Some of those created by title agents yes. um, who uh, had such a problem. Our friend Tom Cronkright, uh, yes. you know, he started because, well, we had this issue. What can I do to help other people? Yes. But, you know, it seems now that, that lenders for your discussion about the relationship between an originating lender and the warehouse provider, that there's a greater understanding of the issue by lenders. Because again, talking for a few years ago when speaking at uh, the MBA meeting, it was like news of life on Mars, that this was such a, a big problem. But what are the concerns that you're seeing and hearing about from lenders in this, uh, well, uh, and I like this term, you know, the B to B to C space. Yeah. Because of course, every borrower is not just a customer or client yeah. of the title and settlement provider, but more importantly, a customer of that lender. That's and that right. lender with privacy concerns, cybersecurity concerns, are lenders going to, or are you seeing that they're requiring more of their approved settlement and title providers to remain? as a, approved providers as to the systems and services they employ to to counter wire fraud in particular? They are. It, it's, it's happening in a few different ways. It's uncharted waters looking back a couple of years ago. And what's been developing is this need to combat fraud. And there's a few different ways you engage in it. One of the ways we got engaged in it was at the request of a top three, top four uh, U.S. international bank where they use our services on warehouse level and um, also stitched up to from their warehouse to originators, uh, both sides using it because remember static data is available for alteration. So it has to be real time source data. Static is no good. There's a number of players that are coming into the market now. They're saying that we verify and now it's data at rest before you close. Uh, data at rest is like, fruit getting overripe <laughs> is not necessarily good. Um, so to your question, so the large bank that I just referred to came to us and basically pointed out that what can you do about our consumers, the actual home buyer? Because we're using and we have resources and intelligence and money to go find a vendor like yourselves in the community, be it Tom's firm and ours and so on and many others, and provide it, protect our down payment and workflows getting to the closing. But when the consumers, what they were noting was, get robbed of their lifetime savings, by, and the consumers don't have the resources, they're not on a network of a corporation, they don't have the resources like IT and so on, 
They might be using an AOL account or a Yahoo account or Gmail account, or might be using the nephew or cousins or husbands and laptop or whatever that be in a Wi-Fi and so on. And they're more susceptible to fraud, obviously. And when they get robbed in this market, they have no recourse. If they had money sitting with Wells Fargo and borrowed money from B of A and their down payment didn't make it, they complain to Wells Fargo and they say, we sent it where you asked us to send it. Your fault, not ours. They go to the title agent or they go to the closing agent or you go to the escrow account and say, what happened? You gave me wrong instructions. I got to sue you. I got to sue Wells. And they also end up suing Bank of America. Right. They've got no recourse. It's a black hole. So the Lawrence Bank described this to us and said, can you do something to we provide uh, we provide some sort of a um, tool that the consumer can also do what we are doing? The money's going to the right designated, valid, legitimate party, licensed party that they're supposed to send it to. So we created the solution and that's what's, you know, the acronym B2B2C, business to business to consumer. So that the consumer gets this choice of verification at the end of the day. I mean, the industry in beyond mortgage industry and banking industry, we've seen it happen in many different ways, multi-factor authorization, right? Making sure that there's two sources verifying you at the same time so that you can then continue to use your credit card or ATM card or with a transaction. So here you need it because the time that elapsed, you know, people lose between starting and closing a transaction, uh, so much time is lost. You need to come close to that closing to ensure before you're giving money away or making a payment. It's like in the old days, I, I talk about it in a, in a trying to be funny that when you used to deal with cash and you gave someone cash to buy something, you looked them in the eye to make sure it's the person you gave it to is the person you intend to <laughs> not give it in an envelope away, looking away. <laughs> so, right. Right. So here you got to do the same thing in this uh, digital environment. So we created the solution and it's like a deep link communication that can come from the lender directly to the consumer just before the closing. And it's mobile immersive and very simple, click, click, play, not complex. You don't have to buy software. You don't have to pay for licensing or anything of that sort. And they simply put in information that they have on their transaction saying wire account, ABA, account number, and name. And our system very quickly responds to them instantaneously, good to go, not a match, need assistance, and there's assistance. So that's B2B2C. I think in this environment, many lenders are looking to offer that to uh, consumers. Uh, they also have simultaneously other challenges dealing with this environment with the downsizing and margins and interest rates. So the adoption of this product uh, is not necessarily as fast as we would like it to be, but it's coming. That's great news. And as I have uh, stressed the title and settlement providers in regard to this issue, we have a lot of privacy laws, obviously, yeah. that have come into play here since the 1st of January. But those closing instructions that come from the lenders now, there's a lot more in those, Yes, uh, especially the national lenders. Yeah. Uh, they revise those closing instructions heavily from many people I've spoken with since the first of the year and going into the first of the year. So, you know, to quote our own, our mutual friend, Penny Reed from Wells Fargo, read your closing instructions. <laughs> and uh, Penny once offered me a dollar every time I said that, but I don't, I've never charged. But yeah, it's obviously something that, uh, you know, that lenders are concerned about because of the reputational risk in regard to their consumer. 
Very much so. Very much so. The reputational risk is a nightmare. Retention of client is of high priority. To come into a business like this where someone's going to buy a house, a dream, and with their life savings and build a home, to get them back as a refinance client or a continuing client in the future, and uh, starting with all the parties that are involved in manufacturing that loan, from loan officer to the realtor and the process that goes through between everybody, it takes a village to close those transactions. <laughs> and it does. <laughs> and to facilitate each one of them to be successful in facilitating a dream or a home buyer and making their livelihood in that service industry, it's important to provide tools and services that allow them to be successful. Um, and as we know, I'm sure you're up to speed on it, um, it costs up to about $10,000 to go originate a transaction. When you show up at that transaction and you can't close it, it's not just $10,000 that the lender spent that has gone to waste, but everybody else who was supposed to make their livelihood in the middle, including the home buyer's savings, are gone. Absolutely. And, and any title and settlement agent will happily show you either an electronic or in the old days in a file cabinet, all those title searches that they paid to get done for those transactions that never closed. And there is a cost attached to those that in most jurisdictions is just not recoverable. That's right. uh, you just have to you just have to eat that. So I really appreciate your time here, Ike, because uh, your knowledge on this and, and your experience and um, and the things that you offer, uh, it is so good to hear that uh, uh, that quite often the, the light at the end of the tunnel may not be just an oncoming train here. That there <laughs> there are there are some solutions, but people need to take advantage of them. That's for sure. Adoption needs to go higher. Awareness and advocacy in this environment, with the help of MBA, FHFA set up a new fintech arm that's basically looking into these solutions. They've been talking to folks like us. I'm very happy you called me into this. Thank you for the invite. Uh, and I hope people enjoy listening to us talk. Well, thank you very much, Ike. And thanks to everyone for listening here today on another uh, installment of FNF Unplugged and hope that everyone has uh, a great day. If you have questions, comments, or would like us to feature a specific topic, email fnfeducation at fnf.com. Thanks for downloading FNF Unplugged, a presentation of the FNF family of companies. All rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or any endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, including Fidelity National Financial or its directors. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed in this podcast.